Donald Trump's deposition from that civil trial has finally been released. Quote, unfortunately or fortunately, unquote. You'll know what that means in a second. The lead starts right now. She's accusing me of rape, of raping her. The worst thing you can do, the worst charge. Rather interesting comments revealed today from the former president of the United States as the world finally gets to see what Mr. Trump had to say about E. Jean Carroll's rape allegations. Then, a fake warning? The Russian mercenary group Wagner says they will leave the war-torn city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine. This, as a top Russian official says, relations with the U.S. are so bad right now the two countries have never been closer to war. Plus, we're talking to that 16-year-old who was accepted to more than 185 colleges and offered more than $10 million in scholarships. He's made his decision. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today in our politics lead with newly released footage of Donald Trump's videotape deposition in that battery and defamation case brought to civil court by writer E. Jean Carroll who accuses Mr. Trump of raping her in a department store in the mid-1990s. That taped deposition, recorded at Mar-a-Lago in October of last year, includes Carol's lawyer pressing Trump about his comments from that infamous Access Hollywood tape, which I'm sure you remember, in which Donald Trump boasted in 2005 about groping and kissing women without their permission, grabbing them by the genitals. And as you'll recall, Trump used some pretty crude language in that Access Hollywood video. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss them. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. The release of the deposition comes as Trump's legal team rested its case Thursday without calling any witnesses. But a New York judge gave the former president extra time until Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. to change his mind about not testifying. Let's bring in CNN's Kara Scannell. Kara, so the Access Hollywood video is relevant because it seems to s- describe what Trump allegedly did to E. Jean Carroll. How did Trump respond when pressed by E. Jean Carroll's attorney about his comments? Well, Jake, you'll remember when this Access Hollywood tape first came out in October of 2016, Trump dismissed it as a locker room talk. But in this deposition, when E. Jean Carroll's attorney is pressing him on this, she makes him go almost line by line to explain what he meant when he said those words. Take a listen. In this video, I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the pussy? Well, that's what, it's, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. Now, Jake, also in this deposition, Trump is asked specifically about the rape. He denies it vehemently. And he's also asked about the statements that he made that are part of the defamation claim in this case. And Trump doubles down on this repeatedly saying in the deposition that he never met E. Jean Carroll. He calls her rape allegations a hoax. And he says repeatedly that she is not his type. Jake. And quite stunning for him to describe stars being able to grab women by their genitals unfortunately or fortunately, but I'll get to back to that in a second. Trump has based uh, 
what his defense is uh, in this case, much of it around the idea that, in his view, E. Jean Carroll is not his type. Uh, putting aside, obviously, the fact that rape and sexual assault is, is about power, not necessarily attraction, that claim seemed to be undermined by himself during the deposition. Yeah, there's this moment in the deposition where Trump is uh, being shown a photo of him and his then-wife, Ivana Trump, at some gala with E. Jean Carroll and her then-husband, John Johnson. So Trump is looking at this black-and-white photo, which we have seen before, and he's you know, being presented like, this is E. Jean Carroll back at the time period. This was just a few years before the alleged assault. So he's being shown this photo. Take a listen to his reaction to it. I don't even know who the woman, let's see, I don't know who, it's Marla. You say Marla's in this photo? That's Marla, yeah, that's, that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. Here. Carol. Oh, is that, the oh, person okay. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. Who is that? Who is this? Point, and the person, the woman on the right is your then wife, I don't Ivana? know, this was the picture. Ivana. I assume that's John Johnson, is that Carol? Because it's very blurry. Now, Jake, as you see there that Trump is confusing E. Jean Carroll from the early 90s with his second wife, Marla Maples. And later in the deposition, he is asked by Carroll's attorney, are all of your wives your type? And Trump says, yes, that they are. So this is something that Carroll's team wants to use to undercut his argument that she wasn't his type and that that statement was a lie, which goes toward one of the defamation claims uh, in this case. You know, it's interesting because Trump, as you said, has waived his right to testify. He has not attended any of the civil trial and he's not required to. But this will be the only words that the jury will see, the words and Trump's reaction to the questions as they consider this case. And they could get it as early as Tuesday. Jake. Yeah. And the jury will also see, of course, that the photograph is not blurry <laughs> at all. Kara Scannell, thank you so much. Here to break down what we learned from the Trump deposition tapes are two former federal prosecutors, Renato Mariotti and Jennifer Rogers, who's also a CNN uh, legal analyst. Jennifer, let me start with you. So, so uh, let's start with where uh, uh, Kara just uh, dropped it. Uh, Trump has said he, he couldn't possibly have sexually sex- assaulted Eugene Carroll because, and I'm, I'm quoting him now, she's not my type. And yet here we have him mistaking a picture of Eugene Carroll with his ex-wife, Marla Maples, who obviously is his type. Yeah, it's a huge blunder on his part. I mean, listen, of course, as you mentioned before, Jake, rape is not really about sexual attraction. It's about power and domination and control. But even assuming for a second that's his defense, you know, you might expect his defense to be, of course, I didn't do it. But secondarily, you might expect someone in the scenario to say, not she's not my type, but instead something along the lines of, I would never do this. My character is too good. Let me bring forward dozens of witnesses to tell you about how this is not the sort of thing I would ever do. He can't do that here. Why? Because that is not his character. He couldn't find any witnesses to say that. And in fact, quite the opposite, there would be then dozens of witnesses on the other side to testify to the contrary. So he's left with this ridiculous defense of, gee, I don't really find her attractive. And now that's not even really available to him either because he's mucked it up with this photo. And, and Renata, the, the, the jury did hear from um, E. Jean Carroll and another woman who accused him of sexual assault. Uh, Trump's lawyers presented no witnesses of their own. What, what, what do you make of this strategy? Well, you can see why, right, Jake, after watching some of these clips, why they might not want him on the stand. But it comes at a very serious risk. You know, Jennifer just mentioned a moment ago, and I think she's right, that the the defense you'd expect from a defendant here would be, of, I would never do this. This is 
awful. I'm just so outraged and 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 concerned that I am being accused of committing a very serious violent crime. Um, but instead, I think by you know not only is he not appearing to testify in person, which means the jury's really never going to have any sort of emotional connection there with him, but you know and, and be able to really assess that, but. He's not there during the proceedings and really, I think, is giving the jury the impression that he's not taking this seriously. And so if they unless they totally disbelieve everything Carol has said and the other witnesses, I think that really Trump and his team are putting them in a, themselves in a position to lose this case. All right. Let me get back to one of the most shocking quotes uh, from from his deposition. Trump is heard on the Access Hollywood tape back from 2005, 2006, bragging about how if you're a star, you can grab women by their genitals, whether they want it or not. Uh, during the deposition, he was asked about it. He said that stars can do that. Uh, and then he says, unfortunately, or fortunately, or fortunately, I mean, doesn't that lend credence to the idea that he thinks that sometimes it's a good thing that stars can get away with grabbing women uh, by their genitals, uh, whether they want them or not? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Sorry, Jennifer, Jennifer, if you could do that. Sorry, Jennifer. Yeah, this I mean, this is another missed opportunity for him. If I'm Trump's lawyer, I'm telling him to keep going with this, you know, uh, locker room defense. It was just talk. I really don't mean it. That's a terrible thing. Instead, he doubles down and says, yeah, sure. Stars can do whatever they want, you know, for a million years now. So, you know, he is a, a terrible witness. That's why we'll never see him on the stand voluntarily. But even these clips demonstrate how he doesn't listen to his lawyers. And to the extent he has any sort of hope of appearing to have a decent shot at undercutting E. Jean Carroll's case, he just flubs it every time. And, and uh, Renato, unlike in a criminal case, this is a civil matter. So uh, it just E. Jean Carroll just needs to succeed and prevail by a preponderance of the evidence. It does not have to be beyond all reasonable doubt. Uh, that's something Im important for people to remember here. The standard is lower for a civil case. Th that's right. She only has to prove by essentially 51% of the evidence. And of course, the evidence is all on her side of the ledger here. Uh, is really going to be a lot of argument, I would say, on the defense side. Um, I do think that she has put herself in a position to potentially get a verdict in her favor, which is really something because there were challenges in her case. Obviously, this happened long ago. Uh, there are, you know, there's no physical evidence. So definitely some challenges there. And I think Trump's team and his own decisions, uh, including some of the uh, very problematic, disturbing testimony we just heard, uh, I think contributes to that. Yeah, not a slam dunk by any means. And who knows what's going to happen. But seems like uh, Mr. Trump helped her a lot today. Jennifer Rogers, Renato Mariotti, thank you uh, to both of you. Coming up, it seems uh, they are no longer untouchable as Yet another revelation involving the Supreme Court justices and their families is raising questions about potential conflicts of interest and a complete lack of an ethics code. Then the royal watchers already camping out, lining up to see history across the pond. We're just hours away from the coronation of King Charles. Washington, D.C. is currently embroiled in a debate over what ethical standards U.S. Supreme Court justices should be held to, if any. Washington Post now reporting that Ginny Thomas, the conservative activist and firebrand and wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, received tens of thousands of dollars in hidden payments for consulting work 
The Post reviewed documents that showed that the payments to Ginny Thomas were set up by conservative judicial activist Leonard Leo. Leonard Leo may not be a household name, or you are, but Leonard Leo helped pick every single one of Donald Trump's Supreme Court justice appointments, as well as dozens of conservative judges with lifetime appointments to the federal bench. During a Senate Judiciary hearing this week on ethics in the Supreme Court, or lack thereof, Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse described Leonard Leo this way. This guy doesn't have business before the court. His business is the court. According to the Washington Post, in January 2012, Leonard Leo told conservative pollster Kellyanne Conway uh, to bill the Judicial Education Project nonprofit. Leo then instructed Conway to give Ginny Thomas another $25,000. And the documents show he emphasized there should be no mention of Ginny Thomas in any paperwork. Never good when someone tells you not to put something in writing and then puts it in writing. Leo told the Post, quote, it is no secret that Ginny Thomas has a long history of working on issues within the conservative movement. The work she did here did not involve anything connected with either the court's business or with other legal issues, unquote. When asked why he wanted to keep Ginny Thomas's name off the paperwork, Leonard Leo told the Post, quote, knowing how disrespectful, malicious, and gossipy people can be, I have always tried to protect the privacy of Justice Thomas and Ginny, unquote. Apparently, the belief that transparency and accountability for the highest court in the land are just gauche and rude. Let's bring in CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic, along with the former director for the Office of Government Ethics, Walter Schaub. Uh, Joan, let me start with you. So people out there might not realize how huge a role Leonard Leo has played in so much of what the court has done, including overturning Roe v. Wade and turning the, uh, what we assume is going to be uh, the dismantling of affirmative action in higher education. Walk us through the, the kind of influence he has. You cannot overstate the influence of Leonard Leo on the Supreme Court. In fact, I've described him as someone who, once you get beyond the White House or Congress, he has had arguably the greatest effect on our federal bench. You mentioned the three Trump appointees that he essentially handpicked through the years. He also, every single Republican appointee on this court was approved by him one way or another, including Chief Justice John Roberts, who met with him. Uh, John Roberts probably would have been selected anyway, but he did meet with Leonard Leo. He is the consummate networker. The Federalist Society goes all the way back to the early 1980s, but it was in 1991 when Leonard Leo became a director that he began raising all sorts of money. In high school, his nickname was Mr. You know, money bags. He was he's he is a terrific networker. He's very effective on he want on what he wants. He worked very closely with Mitch McConnell, uh, in the Senate leader in selecting people, and he was very close to Don McGahn in the Trump White House. And most recently, he secured a one point six billion dollar donation that will help him be even more powerful going forward with money. So, Walter, Democratic Congressman Ted Lieu of California tweeted, "Quote." Leonard Leo directed fake invoices to be made so that he could secretly line the pockets of the wife of a Supreme Court justice. This is corrupt, unquote. Um, How is it corrupt? Obviously, it doesn't look good, but it's not as though Leonard Leo is secretive about what he wants the court to do. It's not as though he's uh, they're making decisions like at the Pelican brief where he stands to make millions of dollars from from land acquisitions in Florida. I mean, how is it corrupt if you think it is? You know, I think his own actions demonstrate that there was an awareness that it at least appears corrupt because you wouldn't work that hard to hide the source of money if you didn't worry about how it was going to appear. Now, he talks about people being malicious and gossipy. 
I think the other way to spin that is the public is concerned about who's paying members of the Supreme Court and their spouses, or rather, or their spouses. Yeah, so we're in an era now where there has been more scrutiny of the U.S. Supreme Court <laughs> probably in the last month or two because of ProPublica and The Washington Post uh, and, and CNN than, you know, it, it feels that then in its history before then. Um, we now also uh, have, there's some, been some stories about how two Supreme Court justices, Sonia Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch, did not recuse themselves from cases that came before the court over the past decade involving a, a specific publish co- publishing company that has paid them lots of money in lucrative book deals. Uh, former Justice Stephen Breyer, who's also received royalties from the same publisher, he did recuse himself. H- how do you see this? Okay, well, this involves a case, uh, several cases where Penguin Random House, the conglomerate that both, uh, all three, Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and Neil Gorsuch all have big contracts with, all contracts that they have disclosed over time. Uh, and two of them did not recuse themselves from cases that were on the uh, list of many, many petitions coming to the court. And this is something that fixed the court, a watchdog group, and then the Daily Wire had talked about, uh, focused uh, more on two of the justices. The reason Stephen Breyer, it could have been, frankly, I don't know why they didn't recuse, because they didn't say. We tried to ask them, you know, why didn't you recuse yourself from cases? They were cases that were not heard by the court. So it's, it's and they did record report their income. I do want to mention, though, uh, Jake, that Stephen Breyer, who did recuse, likely didn't recuse because he had gotten money from this, you know, a subsidiary of the publishing house. It's because his family had owned some stock in the in the yeah. publisher. So th- this area is not a, of the magnitude of other things we've talked about. But what we've tried to do is bring all these things to public light as they've come up, because it is important to say it's not just Clarence Thomas even though his involves so much money, right. there are other justices who have had concerns. Because there's also this information with Mr. Crow, uh, who has been funding uh, Thomas, uh, who's a friend of his, funding his vacations, uh, buying land from his family and letting uh, Clarence Thomas's mom live there, helping uh, with a kid, that, uh, a relative that, that the Thomas family has been taking uh, and taking care of. Um, defenders of Thomas and Harlan Crow say, this is just a friend doing a nice thing for another friend. You know, here's the problem. We are in a situation where the Supreme Court has no code of ethics whatsoever. There's no rules on what kind of gifts you can take. And there's very little oversight of their disclosures. So they're not even complying with the transparency law that there is. Back in about 2011, Justice Chief Justice Roberts began pushing back more aggressively against the idea of a code of ethics. Mm-hmm. I think where we are now is the inevitable result of that. It's a proof of the axiom that absolute power corrupts absolutely. These individuals are not subject to scrutiny. They haven't subjected themselves to a code of conduct. I think this is the beginning, not the end of these problems. Mm. And there was, I saw a tweet uh, suggesting uh, that you know one of the issues, Joe, and you know I think you're the best Supreme Court reporter in the country. I'm on the record for that for the last <laughs> 22 years. Uh, but uh, Nina Totenberg, who is very well-respected, longtime Supreme Court reporter for NPR, she was criticized by NPR's public editor in 2020 for not disclosing uh, her decades-long relationship with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and this might suggest that one of the problems here is a lot of the journalists who have been covering the Supreme Court, again, not you, and not, and, and not a bunch of other really excellent Supreme Court reporters like uh, Jan Crawford and others, but, but some on the right and the left have formed such clo- close relationships that you really have to wonder about 
their journalism sometimes. Yeah, it is a pretty intimate group of people. I, uh, I always kid that justices are appointed for life. Journalists are appointed for life, too. We come to this beat and we don't leave it. But, I mean, like anything else, you want to be friendly with the people you cover, but you don't want to be deep friends. And if you are, have deep friendships, then, then you try to you know, be careful with, with your coverage on that. And I do think that there has been an insularity that we've, we, we fight against. And it's been important to always be able to scrutinize these justices in various ways, which, frankly, I think many of us have. But these recent stories, they're coming from investigative teams, right. really strong. And I, I want to give credit where credit is due. Really strong investigative teams, at, especially at ProPublica. Yeah. You know, and where those people, they may never have even set foot in the Supreme Court to cover a case where someone like me is going to be in there reading the briefs all the time. And I, again, I think the more, the more coverage we have, the better. Yeah, more coverage, the better. And yep. more transparency. I don't know if they're listening here at the U.S. Supreme Court. More transparency. Walter Schaub and Joan Biskupic, thanks, thanks to both of you. A warning to Putin. The leader of the Russian mercenary group Wagner fighting in parts of Ukraine makes an unusual announcement about the battered city of Bakhmut. That's next. In our world lead now, tensions continue to rise between the United States and Russia as Russia's deputy foreign minister told local Russian media that the two countries are currently on the verge of, quote, open armed conflict. This comes as CNN's Nick Robertson reports. The Wagner Russian mercenary group said they're going to pull out of Bakhmut next week as the head of the group posted an an explosive video criticizing the Kremlin for not giving his mercenaries enough ammunition. Russia's top mercenary is turning on Moscow again with a vengeance. Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin screaming at President Putin's defense minister and army chief of staff, accusing them of killing his troops in Bakhmut by starving them of ammunition. We are pulling out of Bakhmut. We have only two or so kilometers left to capture out of 45. Hours later, an ultimatum. Send ammo or he'll pull his troops out of Bakhmut just as they are close to taking it. Also troubling for the Kremlin, Prigozhin hired Mikhail Mitsensev as a Wagner deputy commander. Until last week, he was Russia's deputy defense minister. It hints at a pending Wagner-Kremlin showdown. Ukraine's military spokesman says Bakhmut could be at a turning point if Russia doesn't fix its ammunition supply problem. He also says that Prigozhin cannot afford to continue losing troops at this rate. If he does, the spokesman says Wagner will be destroyed. Prigozhin, he says has no option but to pull out. Prigozhin's machinations having no impact on the fighting around the devastated city Friday. Both sides still feeding men into the front lines, known as Ukraine's meat grinder. (laughs) And the fighting not just on the battlefield. In Turkey, a Russian diplomat rips down the Ukrainian flag 
and is quickly punched at a parliamentary assembly intended to get both sides to agree an extension to the UN-brokered Black Sea grain deal. Russia's diplomats also heading out at the United States. Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Rybakov announcing the US and Russia are on the verge of open armed conflict. A further escalation of recent unsubstantiated Kremlin rhetoric claiming the United States directed Ukraine to fly drones over the Kremlin in an attempt to assassinate President Putin, an allegation both Kyiv and Washington categorically deny. And a new development this evening, Ukrainian officials are saying that uh, the Russian-backed administration in the bit of Zaporizhia region that they control are busing civilians out of a number of uh, towns and villages that are quite close to the front lines. The Russian-backed administration say that those towns are taking heavy uh, shelling at the moment. Ukrainian officials say that this looks like what Russia did before, uh, the, before their offensive in Kherson where they shipped a lot of civilians out, many of them children, took them to Russia against their will. Yeah, war crimes accusations uh, from The Hague on that one. Nick Robertson, thank you so much. Also in our Worldly Today, fans of the royal family are already gathering in the streets of London. They're saving spots ahead of tomorrow's coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. Members of the royal family, including King Charles, Prince William, Princess Kate, greeting mem- greeted members of the public outside Buckingham Palace earlier today. They're going to be joined by William and Kate's three kids tomorrow, as well as Prince Harry, Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, and their kids did not make the trip for their ceremony. And joining me now is the founder of The Daily Beast, Tina Brown. She's also the author of The Palace Papers and a legendary editor. Uh, uh, Tina, so good to see you. So King Charles... So good to see you. He's been waiting five decades, five decades for this moment. What do you think this coronation day means to him? It's the absolute apotheosis of his life. It really is. I mean, unlike his mother and his grandfather, who were sort of accidental monarchs because of the abdication of Edward, he's been trained for this his entire life, literally from the cradle. And his life, you know, he had to make for himself a big niche, essentially, as Prince of Wales. And he did it with this remarkable philanthropies uh, work that he did, you know, with the Prince's Trust, where he's raised 100 million and he's helped hundreds of thousands more, millions of people, including people like Idris Elba, who credits uh, the Prince's Trust for for a grant that that changed his entire life when he lived in dire poverty. So this, you know, he's had this other life. Now he takes over. And for him, it's being in the real sun at last. You know, he's had to be the support player all of these years, including to his former wife, you know, Princess Diana. So this is the moment when he is in the spotlight and he is actually loving it, as you can see, in the yeah. last six months. He's just loving it. And yet, uh, interestingly, he, he has greatly scaled back the ceremony. He's only invited 2,000 guests. He, he shortened the ceremony to about 90 minutes. Do you think this signals in any way how he intends to, to scale back on glamour and expenses of the monarchy? Yes, because he has said for quite a long time that in his time he will, you know, slim down the excessive members of the family who are, you know, used to crowd out that balcony on the, the, you know, the royal balcony in this massive crowd scene. He understands we're in a different age. We're in a tremendous financially, you know, challenging time. He does not want 
the monarchy to get the sort of uh, the backlash essentially of that. And of course, the government plays a role too, because it's the government actually that pays for the coronation. So there's, it's, it's a synergy really between the government saying, hey, wait, 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 we don't want to look as if we are squandering money at a time of great you know, harshness. And secondly, he's smart, Charles. He knows that it's got to change. I mean, so many palaces, you know, he knows that the Windsors are overhoused, you know, Windsor Castle, Buckingham Palace, Sandringham, Balmore. I mean, they have all these houses. And you see him recently sort of redeploying all that real estate. He's, you know, he just ejected Prince Andrew from uh, the Queen Mother's old house, uh, Royal Lodge, where he's been living for the last 20 years. And he's basically said, no, you're going to move into Prince Harry's recently vacated cottage and other things are going to happen to the Queen Mother's old house. So he's very, very beady right now about expense cutting. And you just you just touched on another part of the challenges he faces, the the fact that the royal family has been really plagued by scandal. Um, Andrew, as you note, ha- has been stripped of his titles after these allegations of sexual abuse, which, of course, he denies. Prince Harry, who, along with wife Meghan Markle, live in California. They chose to leave the royal family. How do you see uh, King Charles addressing this going forward? Well, he'll address it by not addressing it, <laughs> which is what he did. I mean, there was a lot of people when Spare, Prince Harry's memoir, came out just excoriating, essentially, his own family. A lot of emotional sort of, you know, requests, like, you know, Charles should make a statement. He should say something. Actually, he's following the totally the playbook of Queen Elizabeth II, which is never explain, you know, never complain. And actually, it worked really well for him during that period. What happened is by saying nothing, telling the rest of the family, get out there and do as many public engagements as you can. Smile, smile, smile. Look gracious. It, this too will pass. He's used to it, really. With the, you couldn't go through worse than what happened with Diana in terms of, you know, the tremendous years of scandal. So he's pretty much a veteran of scars and scandals. And you know, his his attitude is you you sail on and do the public work. And actually, so far, it is paying off for him. Tina Brown, such an honor. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much, Jake. And you can watch every moment of tomorrow's historic coronation right here on CNN. Our coverage starts at 5 a.m. Eastern. Still ahead. Breaking news on the fate of an Oklahoma death row inmate. We've told you his story for months now. He's scheduled to be executed in just 13 days, but the U.S. Supreme Court just weighed in. We're going to talk with the inmate's attorney and his wife. Stay with us. In our health lead today, COVID-19 is no longer a global health emergency, at least not officially. Today, the World Health Organization officially ended its declaration, which was in place for more than three years. WHO officials say the threat of COVID seems to be here to stay. It's just now a lower level of concern. COVID death rates are the lowest they've been in three years. Still, more than 3,500 people globally died just last week from the disease, including more than 1,000 here in the United States. Overall, nearly 7 million have died since the start of the pandemic, more than a million of those deaths in the United States. Also in our health lead, more than 40,000 men and women are suing Johnson & Johnson over the pharmaceutical company's talc baby powder. They claim it is responsible for their cancers. Chief investigative correspondent and anchor Pamela Brown investigates their stories for CNN's new Sunday night primetime series, The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. I'd always buy me Johnson & Johnson baby powder. Whether it was a little bottle or, you know, the big bottle, I always had it. It just was that comfort, that trust. But then these allegations started coming out that that baby powder contained asbestos. We know that asbestos is a carcinogen. It has these tiny dagger-like fibers that penetrate 
very deeply into human tissue. But Johnson & Johnson says flat out, there is no asbestos in its baby powder and that its baby powder does not cause cancer. CNN chief investigative correspondent and anchor Pamela Brown joins us now. I used Johnson & Johnson baby powder throughout when I was yeah. a kid and teens. You talked to so many people impacted by this, or experts outside Johnson & Johnson. What are people going to learn from your reporting? Well, they're going to learn a lot. Look, this has been going on for years and years, these lawsuits against Johnson & Johnson, uh, against its iconic product, the now discontinued talc baby powder. And so what we did is we rolled up our sleeves and we, we dug into the science. Uh, we looked at what the plaintiffs argue is proof that there was asbestos in Johnson & Johnson baby powder, um, including internal memos from inside Johnson & Johnson from the 1950s, where executives talked about the concern of liability from potential asbestos in its baby powder products. Uh, we look at the FDA finding that there was asbestos in one sample of baby powder back in 2019. Now, Johnson & Johnson, we sat down with one of its key lawyers, outside lawyers who has defended it in the courtroom, and we presented all of this to her. And she says, flat out, there has never been asbestos in any of its baby powder, that its baby powder does not cause cancer, in terms of that FDA finding, she said that the FDA's lab was contaminated, and that is what caused the finding of asbestos. And she said the internal documents from the 1950s show that they were aware of the possibility or the concern, but that it's not ex- proof that it actually existed. So it's really going to be an inside, in-depth look investigation into all sides of this story from following the journey of these three women with cancer, ovarian and mesothelioma cancer, filing suit against this multi-billion dollar company. And then we're going to hear from the company itself about why it, it is so firm and vehemently denies these claims. Yeah, I'm reminded of that scene uh, in, the, in, the, in the film where they bring the water. Um, the, the big whistleblower uh, story played by Julia Roberts. I can't oh, wait. Aaron Brockovich. Aaron Brockovich. Aaron Brockovich. Right. She brings yes. the water to her. I'd love just to bring some talc to these people well, I, and, and put them put it on your baby. Well, I did actually ask the lawyer. I said, "Have you ever used talc? Would you?" And she said, "Yes," and I would. Um, that was one of our key questions. Well, saying it's it the, is one. Saying thing. it is one thing, but also big picture. I know you have to go. And Jake, this impacts you too because you wear powder for TV. We all know it. Yeah. Um, we look at how cosmetics really are not as regulated as much as other consumer products, and how it's really the onus is on the companies. For, to, to verify the safety of their products. Very, so a lot we examine. Very important uh, reporting, and uh, I can't wait to watch. Pamela Brown, thank you so much. Shaken, Baby Powder on Trial premieres Sunday, May 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Still ahead. It's hard enough to get into one college. Imagine getting into more than 185. We're going to talk to the 16-year-old who did just that, and now he's announced where he is heading in the fall. What's the lucky campus? Stay with us. A story to make you smile in our national lead after getting into more than 185 colleges. You heard that right, 185 colleges, and receiving more than $10 million in scholarship offers. Malik Barnes, the 16-year-old high school senior from the International High School of New Orleans, he has made his decision. It is an honor and privilege to be accepted to the Ivy League, Cornell University's College of Engineering and Ithaca, New York. Cornell is a great school. My sister went there. He plans to get a dual degree in computer science and criminal justice this upcoming fall. And Malik Barnes joins us now live. Uh, Malik, first of all, what an incredible achievement. How do you even begin when you have 185 colleges to pick from? What, what led you to pick Cornell? 
I mean, I know that whenever I, I was looking for a school, I was looking for a school that would set me up the best. I was looking for a school with a quality education and where I think that I would fit in the best and be more comfortable. Um, after taking into consideration all of my options, Cornell seemed to fit that description, and I'm looking forward to attending school. So I, I, I did a summer program there when I was in high school, and I will just tell you, um, I don't know what the winters are like in Louisiana, but you, you need to buy some long johns and some co- coats and socks and stuff. I hope you're, I hope you're ready for that, okay? Just, you can't go there with, New, with uh, New Orleans outfits, all right? I definitely understand. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's cold down here. It get real cold. In, I mean, it get real hot in New Orleans. Yeah, again, it gets real cold in those Cornell winters. Um, why a dual degree in computer science and criminal justice? That seems like an interesting combination. So it is interesting. One thing I will say is I wouldn't necessarily do a dual degree as a bachelor, um, but I would like to pursue computer science for my bachelor and move on to law school. I say that because I know that um, dealing with computer science, that's a developing technology where you have intellectual property and NFTs. Um, those are things that are going to need lawyers, rules and regulations and to be represented in court. So I would like to be a part of the development of that law and the technology of itself. So that's why I chose that combination. And, and what kind of lawyer do you want to be? Um, I would like to deal with law and technology. Um, I would venture out into getting into other kind of laws. But as of right now, my focus is on technology. Your success has garnered national attention, international attention. It's inspiring a lot of young people. It's inspiring adults. What, what does it mean to you personally? It means a lot to me. And I'm, I heard you say that your sister went there and you were encouraging me. That's definitely encouraging. You really had me looking forward to it. I'm happy to hear good things about the university. Um, all of the attention, all of the advice that I've received, the recognition, the celebration from, like you said, nationally and internationally. I'm definitely, it means a lot to me. I'm very appreciative. Um, I'm happy to have broke the record and I give God all glory on and praise. I got a lot of friends who went to Cornell. They absolutely loved it. Malik Barnes, we're all, I have no right to be proud of you, but we're all so proud of you right now. Thank you so much. Good luck in Ithaca. I appreciate it. A man's life in the balance, facing execution for a crime. The new evidence and the leading prosecutor now say he did not commit what the U.S. Supreme Court just did. They weighed in. That's next. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, movie and television studios are out with a new response to the writer's strike. Are your favorite late night shows any closer to returning to the air? Plus, Washington, D.C. can be a place of alliances and allegiances and partisanship. Down in Florida, state lawmakers are teeing up a Ron DeSantis presidential campaign with a slew of new laws, many of them controversial. And leading this hour, a supreme lifeline. The U.S. Supreme Court today halting temporarily the execution date of Oklahoma death row inmate Richard Glossop. Just for now, they're going to consider whether to take up his case. Glossop's conviction, so legally flimsy, that even Oklahoma's current attorney general says he can no longer support it. Ask Republican or Democratic lawmakers in Oklahoma. It doesn't matter. They list multiple reasons why Glossop should not be executed, let alone in prison. He has maintained his innocence for all 26 years He is spent in prison, accused of hiring someone to murder his boss, Barry Van Trees. Meanwhile, the person who actually murdered Van Trees by beating him with a baseball bat, nobody questions that. That's Justin Sneed. He's in prison, too, not on death row, 
because Sneed secured a deal to avoid the death penalty. Plead guilty, testify against Glossop, and you won't be put to death. Now, since then, two independent investigations have poked hole after hole in the case against Glossop, revealing the state's, quote, intentional destruction of evidence, unquote, an inadequate police investigation, letters from Sneed in prison asking about whether he could recant his testimony. Now, with the U.S. Supreme Court's temporary stay of execution today, Glossop has now endured nine execution dates and three last meals, leaving his advocates wondering, how many chances does he have left? CNN's Bryn Gingras joins us now. And Bryn, this has been a momentous day for Richard Glossop. Do you know if he even knows that his execution has been at least temporarily stayed? Uh, last I heard, Jake, he didn't know. And I know you're going to talk to his attorney, Don Knight, in a short time. He might have some more answers. But he was actually in the last visitation he was allowed before heading to death row, the death watch, as they call it in the state of Oklahoma, visiting with his wife um, and also uh, some of the lawmakers, those Republican lawmakers who really stood by him and supported him through all of this. So last I heard, he didn't yet know. But we'll get those updates. I'm sure you will, Jake. Uh, listen, this was, as you said, momentous, an 8-0 decision by the Supreme Court. And what this allows is this execution to be stayed while the court can consider those filings that are before it. Some of those filings include new evidence in this case that we have been showing on your show and on CNN uh, in his case that really casts doubt about whether or not Richard Glossop should have been convicted of this crime and sent uh, for the death penalty. And also, as you remember, Jake, the attorney general, in the state, Gettner Drummond, a Republican. He stood by uh, the defense, which was an unprecedented move. And that is also something that is before uh, the Supreme Court. And Bryn, you spoke with Richard Glossop on the phone. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I spoke to him yesterday, Jake, to get a sense of how he was feeling as his execution date was nearing. And we talked in depth about uh, what he was feeling. He said he was holding hope. Uh, and I can't wait to ask him about how he's feeling now, but I want you to listen to the conversation uh, that we had yesterday. I've never been on a plane. I've never seen the ocean. In less than two weeks, Richard Glossop is set to be executed. I have a long bucket list, and I want to do everything on that bucket list. So i got a lot of life to live, and I'm going to fight so that I can get it. Glossop hasn't seen life outside of these prison walls in 26 years. Convicted of concocting a murder-for-hire plot in the deadly beating of his former boss, Barry Van Trees, a crime he's always denied doing. Do you think your life is going to be saved in the next, you know, two weeks? I do. And I tell everybody. Everything in this life happens for a reason. I believe that the right thing will be done in the end. There has never been an execution in the history of this country where the state has agreed with the defense that the defendant's trial and conviction uh, was unconstitutional. His case is one that's chipped away at even the most hardened death penalty supporters in the state of Oklahoma and reached global attention. I think that everyone deserves at least to have their case fully examined before they're about to be executed. What's your reaction to, to how much support you've had? I think it's incredible. But I think it's people are tired in this country of all of this justice. We've got to fix the system. Why is it so hard for people to think that somebody's actually innocent? 
Even the state's highest prosecutor, Attorney General Gentner Drummond, took the unprecedented move of arguing for clemency at Glossop's latest parole board meeting. And in the name of justice, I humbly ask that you support clemency. But despite that and newly uncovered evidence in the case, Glossop was denied clemency in a tie vote. Yes, for clemency. Calvin Prince? Yes, for clemency. Richard Miller? No. Kathy Stoker? No. Clemency is denied. You thought you were going to get clemency? I did. I I did. When I heard the first two guesses, I thought it was done. A fifth board member recused himself because of his wife's involvement in Glossop's trial. If we would have had that fifth person, we could have won. Glossop's fate may now rest in the hands of Republican Governor Kevin Stitt, a man who's already issued two stays in the case. Unless the courts act or there's new evidence brought before the courts, uh, we're going to follow the law. But recently signaled he may not take action this time. If this execution moves forward, what do you want your legacy to be? It's kind of simple. I want to make sure that what happened to me can never happen to anybody else again. I just don't want people to ever have to go through what I've been through. Glossop is now starting the grueling process of preparing for what may be his final days with his wife by his side. She has to sit there and do my burial with me. She has to sit there and do my last meal with me. She has to sit there and do my witness list with me. Where does she get justice from? Who gets to pay the price for what they did to me? What they're doing to me? It's murder. And... They're no better than the people on death row. And obviously that whole process that Richard had to go through with his wife, Leah Glossop, that still just happened, as I mentioned, because he had his last visitation. So this news is all still coming to those guys. So this is going to sort of change the course. And of course, uh, this isn't just it, Jake. The SCOTUS, of course, we now wait to see what happens, how the court rules on those filings that are before um, them. But also there are other filings that are happening in the state of Oklahoma that I can imagine their defense attorney, his defense attorneys are still going to be pushing. For example, they they want another hearing. That clemency hearing happened before four uh, pardon and parole board members, not five. And that's against the Oklahoma Constitution, according to his attorney. So there will be more movement both in Oklahoma, but also this is, as you said, Jake, momentous that SCOTUS intervened this close to his execution date. Right. So his execution date is, for, is in 13 days. Yeah. The U.S. Supreme Court has stayed it temporarily. Um, but that all that means, correct me if I'm wrong, Bryn, all that means is they want a little time here to decide whether or not they want to formally review. The U.S. Supreme Court could still ultimately say, you know what, we're not going to formally review this case, and he still could be put to death in, in 13 days, right? They could. However, there's uh, a strong case in there in front of them with uh, the solicitor general there. Uh, He is someone that was appointed by Bush. He is someone that uh, maybe those justices being conservative that they are will want to take a closer look at. So the defense team has a lot of hopes. Sure. Uh, It doesn't really look that way, though. This is a celebration, certainly, uh, on Glossop for the Glossop's defense team. They are they are celebrating this right now. They, They don't anticipate the Supreme Court just pushing this aside. They do anticipate them actually taking a look at this case and making a decision about it. Uh, and, and it looks like this stay could happen. You know, this isn't just a 30-day stay that Glossop has had in the past from the governor. This could be a while if, if the justices do decide to take up this case and really thoroughly review it, which is what they've been asking for uh, for 
years, quite honestly. There are Republican lawmakers there. His defense team has been asking, just take a look at this case. Take a look at all this new evidence that has come up just within the last few months about uh, Justin Sneed, as you mentioned at the top, the person who actually did the killing in this case, how he tried to recant his testimony, how there's allegations that prosecutors threw away boxes of evidence, all of that. They're saying, take a look at it and see if this should go back to a lower court for a jury to take a look at the case again. Bryn Gingras, thank you uh, so much. Uh, with us now, Republican member of the Oklahoma House of Representatives, Kevin McDougal. Also joining us is Glossop's wife, Leah uh, Glossop. Um, Leah, let me, let me start with you. Uh, this temporary stay for, of execution from the Supreme Court uh, from Brett Kavanaugh, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's huge. What's your response? It was incredible. We we went into today thinking it was going to be our, our last physical goodbye together before Richard was due to be moved on death watch. Um, and that was a lot. That was us facing our last hug, our last kiss, our last touch goodbye with, with the one you love. That's a whole incredible weight that I think people don't quite realize that we were facing today. And we went into the day um, thinking that's what we were getting ready to do. And um you know, uh, the clock was ticking down and, and that moment was coming when our visit was ending and the warden came in and pulled us out to, to break the news to us. And we just crumbled. It, it truly felt like an answered prayer, uh, really an answered prayer that, that God is watching. And uh, uh, Representative uh, McDougal, uh, what's your reaction to the news today? I, I couldn't hardly hear your question. I just heard uh, you say Representative McDougal. Sorry. Well, what's your reaction to the news today of the stay of execution, and what what do you, what needs to happen now? I, I don't know if he. It doesn't sound like he can hear me. We're going to work on that connection. Um, Leah, obviously, um, I can't even imagine what you and Richard are going through. Um, uh, what what now needs to happen? What, uh, obviously, the, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has an opportunity to learn about all of the reasons why it seems questionable that your husband is in prison, even much less on death row. Um, let's right. say, let's say that they're listening right now. Okay, that happens in this town. What do you want <laughs> them to know? Um, I, I hope that they just take the time to to review this case. Uh, and, and that it will bring us one step closer to, to finally uh, seeing the justice that I and so many people believe that Richard so rightfully deserves. Um, and that is our, our ultimate hope is that they, they just take their time with this case and, um, and that it'll bring us one step closer to where we need to be um, and where we will continue to pray that we will end up and get to the other side of this together. And, and uh, what do you want viewers to know, people who are not going to be reading through legal briefs? What should they know about why you think Richard should be a free man and not on death row? I, th- I think the biggest takeaway from, from Richard's case is that this really does happen. Um, and I think if anyone takes the time to, to look at his story, uh, they, they can learn exactly how these do, things do happen, no matter how many trials you have and how many appeals you have. Um, it's still possible that these things happen. Um, and, and I think the incredible coalition that has formed around him is a testament to that. Um, all the, the legislators that have been um, fighting so hard for him, um, and many of whom are pro-death penalty Republicans. And, and that really says something, that they took the time to look at this case. And 
of course, the courageous action of Attorney General Drummond as well. And and um, I think that should should tell everybody that there is something deeply wrong with what's happened in Richard's case, um, which is why we are where we are today. Um, and that they just take the time to 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 learn that these things happen and hopefully uh, prevent it from happening in the future and prevent future Richard gossips from from existing. Yeah, and, ju- and just for people who are who are just tuning in um, or, or, or don't know all the details, a, a guy named Justin Sneed. Nobody disputes the fact that Justin Sneed killed Barry Van Trees. Everyone agrees that that happened. Right. But the, the prosecutors cut a deal with Justin Sneed. If he would testify that your husband paid him to kill Barry Van Trees, then he would be spared the death penalty. And since then, he has expressed regret, seemingly, for saying that. He has asked about recanting it, seemingly. And since then, right. the, the law has actually been changed in Oklahoma so that you cannot even be on death row if you are the hirer of, 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 of a hitman, per se. What do you make of the fact mm-hmm. that Governor Stitt, Senator Lankford, Senator uh, Mark Wayne Mullins have not come out as aggressively as the attorney general, who obviously, as you note, is a pro-death penalty conservative Republican. Um, where are the other people from Oklahoma uh, who need uh, to, to rally around this cause? Uh, well, well, all I will say to that is that I hope um, everything that's gone on now, uh, the news today, and, and everything that has brought us to this point uh, will be a signal to everybody who is not currently involved uh, that they will, will take this as a moment that, um, that they will add their voice and their support and take the time to look at this case, as other people have, and, uh, and join this effort to, to really ensure that Richard does see justice and um, if they are not involved already, um, for and that goes for anybody, um, that that they they will see that perhaps this is the time once and for all to to join in this effort and in this fight to to right this wrong uh, once and for all. Leah Glossop, stay in touch. We're going to keep covering this story. We're going to stay on it as long as it takes. We really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you from both Richard and I. We're we're very grateful that you have been covering the story the way that you have. So so thank you from both of us, and God bless you. God bless you. We're going to bring you more on the Richard Glossop case as we get those updates. Also coming up, Hunter Biden hires a new attorney, and that is already ruffling feathers inside the White House, his dad's White House. Those new clashes are next. Turning to our politics lead as the years-long Justice Department investigation into Hunter Biden, the president's son, which began in 2018, has dragged on. And as House Republicans ramped up their vigorous probes of the president's son, Hunter Biden has hired an aggressive new attorney to take a more combative approach to investigators. But CNN has learned that that decision has caused some tension inside his father's White House. CNN's Paula Reed is digging into this for us. Paula, what are you learning about these concerns from the White House? Well, Jake, this goes back to late last year after Republicans took over the House, made it clear that Hunter Biden was going to be one of their primary targets for investigations. And the Justice Department's long-running investigation into Hunter Biden had failed to yield any charges. At that point, one of his attorneys, Kevin Morris, decided it was time to take a more aggressive, forward-leaning approach and go on offense. But I'm told by multiple sources that this caused some, quote, anxiety among senior Democrats who were worried about what that strategy would look like and how it would play out for the president's son. But over some of these concerns, Morris moved ahead and surprised some people when he brought on Abby Lowell, a famously very aggressive lawyer. 
And I'm told that also caused some tension inside Hunter's legal team at the time. And one of his White House aligned attorneys, Josh Levy, resigned after Abby came on. But I am told that late last year there was a meeting between senior White House officials, senior Democrats, and Abby Lowell trying to at least keep an open line of communication because this is going to be the lawyer who is going to be representing him in some of those contentious Hill investigations. And now since Lowell came on, we have certainly seen a more aggressive strategy. He has filed lawsuits on Hunter Biden's behalf. He has fired off letters to the Hill seeking, for example, an inspector general investigation into how some suspicious activity reports related to Hunter Biden ended up online. Also asking for an ethics investigation into Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. In fact, earlier this week, we also saw Abby Lowell down in Arkansas in a court for a child support dispute that Hunter Biden is currently trying to get his child support payments lowered. So, Jake, you can imagine Abby Lowell in family court in Arkansas, clearly indicative of a very aggressive and possibly very expensive approach. But they believe that that a child support dispute has really become a proxy for some of these Republican investigations. And what happens next? It's a great question. I am told that over the past several months, some of that initial anxiety about this more forward-leaning approach really has, it has tamped down because they've seen that arguably this has been a fairly successful approach. And I'm told there is currently that open line of communication that the White House was seeking between them and Abby Lowell. But of course, the big question, Jake, is what is going to happen with the federal criminal investigation? It's been going on for years. As CNN has reported, it has really whittled down to just a few possible charges related to possible tax offenses and possibly one charge related to the purchase of a gun. But even last week, as we reported, Hunter's legal team met with the Justice Department, but we heard from multiple sources that there was no indication that that investigation is going to yield any charges. And at this point, it's unclear exactly how that will resolve. But if anything happens there, that will certainly be a test, not only for Biden's new strategy, but also for their relationship with the White House. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Is the flurry of activity in the Florida legislature helping to pave the way for a Ron DeSantis presidential campaign? We're going to go live to Florida next. But what happens uh, in the future? Look, people will, will, will get on that relatively soon. I mean, there's just, you know, you either got to put up or shut up on that as well. So, so we'll see. Governor Ron DeSantis putting off any major announcement about his political future today in a speech before the Florida legislature. This comes after the governor has helped lead a flurry of legislation through the Florida State House with lawmakers, Republican lawmakers, passing what many critics are calling a, a contentious, controversial agenda. CNN Steve Contorno joins us now live from Florida. Steve, uh, what did Governor DeSantis have to say to the Florida legislature today? Jake, there was a lot of backslapping and hugging between DeSantis and Republican lawmakers today as they celebrated the end of the legislative session here. Over the last 60 days, they have pushed through a slate of bills, all of which DeSantis has prioritized and handed Governor DeSantis a potential platform for him to run for president if he chooses to get into the race. Let me just go through some of what is on his desk or he has already signed, and, and it's quite a bit. But, you know, there's an abortion ban after six weeks with limited exceptions for, you know, rape or incest or if the woman's life is at risk. People can carry a concealed gun in public now without a permit 
or going through training. Uh, the threshold to put someone on death row is now the lowest in the nation, just eight jurors. And you can also now execute child rapists if they, in what will be a challenge to a Supreme Court ruling. There are also several bills aimed at, uh, at transgender population in Florida, including a bill that would limit the ability for children to get any uh, ch uh, sex aff affirmation surgeries or treatments, and also a bill that prevents uh, transgender people from using their chosen bathroom in, in, in public restrooms. Uh, all of this is now uh, part of DeSantis' agenda, and, and he spoke a little bit today about the significance of what passed during this legislative session. Take a listen. At the end of the day, it's like, OK, what are you going to do you know, if you actually get in office? Are you going to lead? Um, are you going to deal with issues that are out there? Um, or are you going to kind of rest on your laurels? And I think that this legislature said, um, you know, we're going to tackle all these issues, we're going to take all the meat off the bone, and we are going to deliver results for the people of Florida. Uh, all session long, Democrats have been beside themselves, but they have no power to stop this. Republicans have the power in both chambers, and they use it to hand DeSantis uh, a, a decisive, contentious yes, but consequential and very conservative uh, victories that he's going to run on if he gets in this race in a few months. All right. A few weeks. Yeah, a few weeks. Steve Contorno in Florida, thanks so much. Uh, joining us now to discuss CNN senior political correspondent Abby Phillip, along with Molly Ball, who is a national political correspondent. Uh, for Time uh, magazine. So, I mean, I'm looking at this list here, Ab Abby, six-week abortion ban, no permits for carrying a concealed gun, uh, being able to put somebody to death with uh, eight jurors, not needing a majority. I'm sure that that will be helpful in a Republican primary. Will this be helpful in a general election nationally? I think it just gives, um, if he makes it to the general election, it gives Democrats potentially a lot of ammunition. Uh, this is both DeSantis's greatest strength and perhaps his greatest weakness. I think there's probably no other political figure in this race even that can say that he has done as many things on the Republican Party's wish list as DeSantis. But for that very same reason, I think uh, it's going to put all of those issues to the test of a general election population that is just a lot more moderate on a lot of these issues. And this is something that uh, that I think DeSantis is probably not that concerned about right now because his biggest challenge really is getting out of the primary. But you're starting to see some, uh, you know, very well-heeled Republican donors starting to say, I don't know if this is going to put him in the strongest position in a general election. People like Peter Thiel, and they're voicing some concerns publicly and loudly at the moment. And Molly, uh, DeSantis obviously making combating uh, the woke agenda, he calls it, a central part of his agenda. Florida is where woke goes to die, et cetera, et cetera. There's a new CBS um, News YouGov poll. Among Republican voters who want a candidate to challenge woke ideas, so-called woke ideas, Trump uh, wins those voters 59 percent, DeSantis only 24 percent. What do you make of that? I think it's just a reflection of Trump's continued strength in this Republican primary. We've seen him holding a commanding lead with all Republican voters. And so, of course, they're going to say they like him best on various issues. But I do think it, it is, as Abby said, going to be a source of strength for DeSantis when and if he gets in the race to be able to say that he set the agenda on these issues. He can really say he was talking about a lot of these themes around so-called wokeness, political correctness, whatever you want to call it, uh, really before Trump took them up. He has been leading the way 
on things like, you know, the the, the so-called book bans and the and the so-called don't say gay bill. Of course, he right. has letting letting terms local for them. letting local districts uh, lead the way on that, but but allowing exactly. them to do so. Yeah, exactly. But but I think this is this is his whole pitch. As he was just talking about, you know, some leaders lead and others follow. A lot of governors we know are just there to sort of mind the store, run the state well. But he's about racking up win after win for the conservative base to be able to say, you know, I didn't just sit there and, and sign bills. I set the agenda. I led on these issues. And that that's the pitch that I think we can expect here's him the, to make. Here's the other thing that I think this will be a test of. And it's really comes down to whether Republican voters even care about like policy, really. I mean, I think it's a real kind of buzzword uh, of a certain type of, you know, maybe even more moderate Republican voter that says, oh, I love Trump's policies, but not his personality. Well, honestly, the rest of the Republican Party loves his personality and they're cool with his policies, but it's really the kind of charismatic figure that has made Trump uh, so difficult to touch. And I think it remains to be seen whether all of this will really amount to anything uh, in that context for Ron DeSantis. I don't know that Republican voters want or would preference a wonk over a Donald Trump in the primary. And I think that's really what we're going to find out soon enough. But isn't there also reason to wonder whether for instance, a six-week abortion ban is basically just a ban. It's just like basically women you, and girls, you cannot have abortions. Um, whether that, whether how aggressive he's been banning trans procedures uh, for children, uh, even if the doctor, even if the parents even, you know, want the procedure to happen. Isn't there an argument to be made that there's polling that suggests that that's not where the swing voters in the suburbs are? It certainly isn't. But is it where Iowa Iowa caucus voters are, right? And you have to think that that is the first. I mean, you cannot get to that general election where that question is decided unless you get through the primary. And what we have seen is that, particularly in Iowa, conservatives really do care about those social issues. They really do care about abortion. Uh, and so I think you, clearly it is, going to, it is going to be a strength if he wants to talk to those voters. But the question is, you know, are Republican voters going to prioritize electability? Are they going to look at these candidates and say, We're, we need someone who can win the general election? And then what is the argument uh, with Trump, right, who, can, who has already lost the election, well, but most of his voters don't believe that he lost the election? I mean, it's so ironic to even be talking about electability and, and Trump. You know, sort of winning that argument. But you, when you see Trump kind of navigating a little bit closer to the center on something like abortion, it does kind of suggest that his campaign is trying to position himself as someone who's reading the room a little bit better than Ron DeSantis. I don't think you're going to see that necessarily on trans issues, but you are seeing it on abortion. I think that that's notable at this stage. Even though Donald Trump is the reason that Roe v. Wade was overturned. He won and he appointed Absolutely. And remember, justices. in the campaign, yeah. he was the one who raised the issue of, you know, penalizing women for seeking abortions. Yeah. He won't walk that back. But that was Donald Trump in the primary, too. Abby Phillip and Molly Ball, thank you so much. Be sure to tune in to CNN when Abby hosts Inside Politics on Sunday. That's Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern. This afternoon, the U.S. Supreme Court temporarily halted the execution of Oklahoma death row inmate Richard Glossop. That's at least for now. Moments ago, CNN's Bryn Gingras spoke to Glossop to get his reaction. This is a second phone call, and we're going to bring that to you next. And we're staying on that break in news internationally. The U.S. Supreme Court today temporarily halting the execution of Oklahoma death row inmate Richard Glossop, who has their lot of, a big case to make about whether or not he belongs in prison, much less on death row. Let's go straight to CNN's Bryn Gingras, who's been on this story for us for months. And Bryn, you just wrapped up 
a second phone call with Richard Glossop immediately after he learned that the U.S. Supreme Court had intervened. Tell us more. Yeah, what a low and a high for Richard Glossop, because as I told you before, Jake, this was a day where he was having his final visitation, the last moments with his wife, and they've learned that that's when he got the news about this stay. Take a listen to our conversation. How are you doing? Okay, great. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's been a very interesting day, to say the least. Um, my wife and I were down for our last visit together, and I had taken my property down for her to pick up. And, uh, yeah, she was she was really worried and, and, and concerned that she was really going to lose it at the end of the visit. They let us take some pretty awesome pictures, and then... Uh, yeah, and then we were sitting there, we had a half hour to go, and she, they knocked on the door, they came to the door and asked us to come out in the hall, and they took her and I out in the hall and told us we got to stay. So and you I, got told it, together. It was amazing. Huh? You got told together. Yeah, they pulled us out together and told us, yeah. And what did you do? I, I, I said, I, I yelled, are you kidding, at first, and... Um, and, and they said no, and so uh, her and I just grabbed each other, and, and uh, yeah, it was amazing to watch the expression on her face and to see how relieved she was. And, uh, it was just amazing that she was really so worried and, and so stressed out, and, and I'm just really grateful that we got to share it with it. We got to share it all together. We got the news together. We got the pictures together today. We got to spend time with McDougal and Justin Humphrey and Sister Helen Prejean. So it was a really good day, and then, and then to get that news too, it just really well. How are you feeling? Well, you know, hopeful. The fight's still not over. Uh, I want to continue to fight. I want to continue to get my message out to people. I want people to continue to stand up, because until they rule and they get it right, the fight's never done. We have to continue to fight and fight and fight until we get it, until we accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, yesterday you told me, phone, when we, uh, Rich, when we talked on the phone, you told me that you know the right thing will prevail. Do you still feel that way? I do. I do. More so now than ever. You know, we got all eight judges to grant the stay. It's serious enough for them to look at, and that's what's important. Is that they, they're not going to take it lightly, and that's what I'm grateful for. You know, one of the courts has to do the right thing here, and I'm hoping this is the court that's going to finally do the right thing. Yeah. What happens next for you? Is that visit with my wife next Friday? <laughs> that's important to me because we thought that was the last one today, so it's going to be nice to be able to, to go down there and see her Friday and uh, spend that time with her. But it's like I said, you know, my fight's not over. I still want to speak out. I still want to get the evidence out. I still want people to understand how bad this was and how we can't let this happen anymore. So I definitely want to want to use this time to still speak out to people and to show people, first off, that there is always hope that somebody will do the right thing. And, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's what it is for me is to continue to fight. Listen, you've been before the Supreme Court before. You've had a case. You're before the Supreme Court again. How does that feel? Yeah. Uh, you know, it feels good. I feel good to be before the Supreme Court, and I feel, I feel good that we have the people that we do on our side. I think it makes a difference. I think our case is powerful. I think that 
this case could change a lot in this country, and, and that's what I'm hoping it will do. It will fix some of what's broken, at least, is what I'm hopeful for. When you say what's broken, can you expand on that? You, what, what do you want to see changed with your story? Well, one of the things that's got to change in our system, especially when it comes to death penalty cases, is procedurally bar. You know, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. When somebody's life is on the line and they have new evidence proving their innocence, that should never be barred for any reason from a court. Getting around it mm-hmm. and, and not having to rule. And I think that that's important that we fix that in this country to stop that. If we can get that taken away to where they have to look at evidence, it makes it, makes it different. It makes it more difficult for them to shoot people down. And I think that's what has to change. That's one of the biggest changes. Yeah. All right, Rich. Thank you so much for calling. You're, you, it seems you're maybe a bit closer to that bucket list. I know. I can't wait for it. I'm happy and just ready to be there, to be with my wife, and to, to finish out my life happy, and that's all I want. That's what I want to do. Brian, what, what a remarkable uh, phone call. But you know, look, I don't want to be a buzzkill. This, this fight is still not over. Yeah, it's not. But you could tell there, Jake, that he's measured and, and he knows his fight's not over. He has been through so, so many courts in front of the Supreme Court before, too. And he's been denied, 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 mostly in Oklahoma. And, and he knows that it's very possible the Supreme Court may decide that his case doesn't get another look. So he is certainly measured. And you heard he just wants to keep fighting. But I do every time I talk to him and I've talked to him three times now, he is so hopeful and he always turns the conversation around about the people he loves loves his wife, also his defense team, all those lawmakers he know who have really stuck out their necks for him, but also the people he knows that are in the same position that he is in behind bars and they should not be executed, certainly for uh, something that they have evidence proving their innocence in his words. So that is what he fights for. That's what keeps him alive behind those bars. But yes, he's very well aware that this fight isn't over, but he isn't giving up fighting. Just a reminder, he has never been accused of actually committing murder. He is accused by the murderer of hiring him. Bryn Gingras, thank you so much. Thanks for staying on top of this. We are going to continue to cover it. Coming up, the 2010s were a wild age for TV. It changed what we watch. It changed how we watch. And we're going to talk to a star from one of the most popular, one of the best series from that era, Homeland. Stay with us. In our pop culture lead, the 2010s are, believe it or not, well in the rearview mirror, which means that the acclaimed CNN original series Decades is back. I don't have to tell you the 2010s were marked by political upheaval and the rise of social media, social unrest, and some peak television where we saw big movie stars and huge TV productions uh, on the small screen. Shows such as Game of Thrones, Orange is the New Black, American Horror Story, Breaking Bad, Mad Men, House of Cards, and Homeland, all of them changing how and what Americans watch. I just remember this still being a really big deal at the beginning of this decade. Claire Danes, movie actress, has deigned to come to television to play this complicated character. If I have a chance to work with material of of this caliber, I will, in any medium. Cable has created this whole new environment that is incredibly fertile. What started in the 2000s was the gradual elimination of the mid-budget movie. And so you have this great class of character actors looking for satisfying material and they're not finding it in movies. So they started to come to Showtime and places on cable.
I'm joined now by Rupert Friend. He played the troubled spy Peter Quinn in the acclaimed 2010 series Homeland. You might recognize him also. He's one of Lord Vader's bad guys from Obi-Wan. Uh, it's so good to have you on. Thank you so much. Let me ask you, Homeland, I'm not going to spoil anything because there are still people who probably haven't seen it, and I do recommend having watched every single episode that they, they check it out. It started as the story of a U.S. Marine returning home after being held as a POW in Afghanistan for eight years, and the big question was whether or not he had he'd been turned during captivity. At that era, it was kind of a risky thing to raise questions about patriotism and the, and the war on terror. What drew you to the show initially? First of all, thanks for having me, Jake. Um, it was actually the only show that I watched in England, and I just thought it danced that line of ambiguity so beautifully in a way that, as your introduction um, mentioned, we, we were getting writing of a caliber that hadn't made, never even seen on television before. So deciding who the good guys and bad guys are used to be such a sort of black and white concept, and I think that Homeland was one of the first shows to sort of say it's not that simple. In addition to that, how do you think shows such as Homeland changed TV uh, and how we watch it? Because obviously, and pe- the kids today don't know, but it used to be only a few channels, and you had it was, you know, you had to record it if you wanted to watch it. It's a, it's just a completely different universe now. Yeah, and of course, the the notion of binging was born in the decade that we're talking about. The idea that you could you can now sit down and watch eight seasons of Homeland back to back if you've got the energy, and it probably would reward that. But um, it, it definitely became the idea of exploring a character for, for that length of time. And in my case, a character who began ostensibly as a sort of heroic assassin of some kind. And then as we saw the, without spoiling it, he has a very, very drastic change um, sort of halfway through the the, the, the seasons and, and is in some ways unrecognizable for his final uh, season. Mental health obviously playing a big role in the characters of Homeland, whether the main character or any of the supporting characters. Obviously, Brody's PTSD when he returned uh, carries uh, bipolar disorder. So many shows in the in the past decade broke barriers talking about uh, mental illness, uh, mental health struggles, making it okay to talk about topics that had been perceived as, as formerly taboo. Where do you think we're going to be in 10 years from now? I hope the conversation continues. If television can have a role, fictitious television, it is to begin those conversations and make them, if not normalized, then okay to have. Whether we're talking about sexuality or gender or physical or mental health, any of these things that were previously stigmatized and pushed into the shadowy corners should be front, front and foremost and should be fair game for further conversation and so people can get the help they need. Um, and if television can do that as well as entertain, then I think that's a great thing. Well, Rupert Friend, you've been entertaining me for a long time, whether on Homeland or Obi-Wan Kenobi or Anatomy of a Scandal. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you so much uh, for all the entertainment over the years. Thank you very much. And be sure to tune in the all new CNN original series, the 2010s premieres Sunday with a special two hour episode at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific only on CNN. Coming up on The Situation Room, Wolf Blitzer talks to one advocate demanding charges in the chokehold death of a New York City homeless man. But next, on The Lead, the latest numbers that are alarming scientists. In our Earth Matters series today, the ocean's surface heat is hitting record-breaking levels, and scientists are scrambling to try to figure out why. Temperatures fell since their peak in April, but they're still higher than they've ever been for this time of the year. The co-author of a recent study on heat in the climate system says one reason for the highest higher ocean temperatures could be a regulation that was meant to reduce pollution. That rule 
lowered the amount of sulfur in fuel that ships use, but it turns out that sulfur actually served as an artificial sunscreen for the ocean, keeping water temperatures down. Be sure to join me this Sunday on State of the Union. I'm going to be talking to the number two Democrat in the Senate, Senator Dick Durbin, in a joint interview with the chairman and ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, Republican Congressman Mike Turner and Democratic Congressman Jim Himes. It's at 9 a.m. at noon Eastern on Sunday, only on CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you Sunday morning. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.